applying lessons learned to securing the power grid. I'm Tanya Hall and joining me is Neil Dennis, cyber threat intel specialist at Cyware. Welcome back, Neil. Thank you, Tanya. Glad to be back. Remind our audience about your professional background in cybersecurity. Yeah, uh, threat intel specialist, but an intel analyst by trade um, from the Marine Corps. And uh, spent about five, six years active duty as a linguist, all that fun stuff, and then transitioned over to a government contractor and a consultant for I don't know, almost 10, 15 years, something like that. And worked at Cybercom before it was Cybercom, um, worked at Stratcom, bunch of other picacoms here and there, but always cyber focused as an Intel analyst and then kind of bounced out and started building out threat Intel operations for uh, private companies. And now work as an Intel specialist at a product company called Cyware. So. so let's get into it. We all read about and too many of us experienced the ransomware attack that took out a petroleum pipeline in a big segment of the U.S. An even more vital and immediate cyber target would be the power grid of any developed nation. So have we wargamed how power grid attack would start? Yeah, there, so there is actually a national kind of war games thing that focuses on stuff like that. There's, uh, coincidentally enough, there's also some information sharing groups, ISACs and ISILs that, that try to support that. But I think probably one of the weird problems is you can always tabletop exercise it, but until you're able to do it in prac app, which you shouldn't really do against these grids, right? At least not yet. Um, it, it's never really a real world exercise outright. It stays virtual, it stays tabletop-ish. And, um, you know, it's all wishful thinking type exercises, unfortunately. So, yeah, there, there is a lot of thought about it. There's a lot of intent, um, even at the national level for years. Um, I just think front of mind now, hopefully we'll actually start legit war gaming on more sensitive things directly. Certainly, we have rule and signature based security solutions to help us identify threats. But what are some of the tactics, techniques, and procedures that an advanced adversary might employ? Yeah, that, that's always a fun one, a hard one. Uh, I, I know there's stats floating around that talk about spear phishing from both cybercrime as well as APTs being kind of one of the number one vectors, email in general, right? So I think it, it's, it's very important to realize that whether they're cybercrime and low tech or whether they're big tech and APT, chances are bulk majority of it does start by email somehow. Um, but the other flip side of that is state-sponsored threat actors clearly have resources to develop zero days. They clearly have resources to go out and uh, develop exploits against your servers and things like that that normal normal adversaries on the criminal side won't necessarily be able to go out and do because it's you know five, 10-man shop versus a state-sponsored 100-man shop or whatever it may be. And so it, it does run the gamut, but by and large, email is still a primary vector for a lot of a lot of those compromises. And then the second part, last piece, work from home. So big COVID thing, you, you'll hear a lot of people talk about this, remote desktop protocol, unsecured network devices, simply there to support us people that don't go to an office anymore. That has obviously become a really big thing in the last 12 months for sure. So. Open gates, less secured gates, not necessarily exploiting anything crazy. Um, it's just, you know, opportunistic and state-sponsored actors have a really good job or a really good way of doing that. How important is threat intel sharing and are dispersed organizations like power distribution companies open to sharing that kind of information? Yeah, threat intel sharing is 
always important. Um, whether it's a single IP address that you have no clue what it actually is, uh, and you just need to ask that question, or whether it's a legit full-fledged incident that you're like, man, this came in, we mitigated it somewhere in the line, hopefully, but here it is. Please you know, make sure that you do diligence on your own systems because this could have been really bad for us kind of thing, right? So the varying degrees of the importance and quality of the data, but you know, it, it's, it is very important. And the electrical grid companies, the natural gas companies, all these power providers or the people in the supply chain for that, they do want to share. Um, it, it's just maybe resource management that precludes them from probably doing it more than they could. You know, it, it's uh, uh, the people I talk with almost daily. They they love the idea. They love the idea of putting information out there. They love the idea of getting information from their peer groups. It's just you've got shops at these levels that are three, four men max. And so they're already doing the workload of 10, 15, 20 people. And now you're asking them to take another 15 minutes to send an email or log into a portal, something like that, when they could be responding to that ticket queue or researching an incident that they know might be a little more serious. Um, so yeah, there, there is a tenacity to do it. It's just, you know, trying to find ways to help facilitate it better, whether that's with new tech or, you know, cultural shifts kind of thing. If the power is out, how do you run the electronic tools and communication you need to isolate and remove the attacker? Yeah. Uh, well, I think, I guess a good thing is, uh, for most of the people like, like the power providers, um, the one good thing they do a lot is have redundancies in their own systems locally, uh, a lot of battery operated stuff, but it is kind of a catch 22 though. Right. So if something does actually shut your system down completely, how do you get in and mitigate the system back up to normal? So I know smaller shops aren't going to have the level of redundancies that like a major municipality would, where they could load shed to a second network. But a lot of it probably does come down to just, you know, hoping you have the right redundancies in play. And then, uh, you know, when you spend something back up and go back to playing whack-a-mole. <laughs> How important is it to air gap a grid operator's power network controls from its business and billing processes? Uh, it, it's, it's extremely important. Um, for the most part, a lot of that does happen, thankfully. Uh, but I think, so back to everybody's favorite pipeline, um, you know, we, we, I think news wise, we found out where things actually happened, right. And why the system legitimately was taken offline. So it's one part, probably the threat actors that knew what network they're on, not wanting to do something, thankfully, but they did seem to have things appropriately air gapped as they should. These control systems are, are very sensitive, right? They're very prone to breaking by simply looking at them the wrong way. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, if you gyrate one too hard, you know, you never know something's going to fall down. So introducing these variables from a corporate network into that OT network, the operating tech network can be very, very problematic anyways. So not just from a security purpose, but just in general, it's always good to have that stuff air gapped accordingly. Um, I think as new tech comes online, there'll probably be some more firm crossovers uh, in the near future as things start talking the same language a little bit more, but completely important. It's your last state of defense before getting into this antiquated systems that would just be very easy to rip through. So then in your opinion, what weaknesses did the colonial pipeline ransomware attack expose in our overall cybersecurity posture? Yeah. Uh, you know, they, they just, they, they took advantage of what the rest have been taking advantage of very common practices, very common exploits. And, um, uh, I just think it goes to show you that uh, that there's still a long way to go for everybody 
on, in respect to vulnerability management, in respect to educating their personnel on good hygiene. Um, and once again, stats-wise, at the end of the day, the vast majority of all these events would be very readily mitigated, simply updating your systems, running good hygiene security-wise, and having your, your employee base educated. And the Colonial Pipeline is a great example of how potentially all three of those aspects failed um, at some point in the chain. So um, very standard approaches to everything, and they're just taking advantage of it consistently until we figure out our own stuff a little better. Neil Dennis, Cyber Threat Intel Specialist at Cyware. If somebody wants to connect with you, Neil, and pick your brain on some ideas, what's the best way they can do that? Uh, you can find me at LinkedIn very, very easily. Um, so just search for Neil Dennis and look for the Marine. Uh, and also uh, neil.dennis at cyware.com is always a good place as well. Well, thanks again for your time, Neil. Thank you, Tanya. Of course. Find and subscribe to more of my interviews right here on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or at tanyahall.net. Thanks for watching.